morning, FPG family and beyond. Pastor Chad here. Excited to have you join us for our 9.30 a.m. online service. So glad to have you with us, and I'm excited to share with you this morning. We continue our series in the Psalms. Last week, Pastor Kevin got us started, and he pointed out some powerful things about how reroutes bring in this flood of emotion. And with these emotions, they're, they're not something that we necessarily get to control when they happen, but they are triggered often by these reroutes. And these emotions can be powerful. I can think of many times in my life where a reroute has triggered emotions. Uh, we're looking at a, a psalm in, today in particular, Psalm 90, where what has caused this reroute, it's a season of crisis. And it's a particular crisis that is flooding with emotions. And when we think about crises in particular, they're, they're times of often intense and difficult, oftentimes danger, trouble, loss, illness. But a crisis is something that we don't expect, and it's something that comes on us, and it produces emotion. And oftentimes we don't know what to do. And, and the Psalms, this is a place that we can go and we can see how do we cry out in crisis. The term reroute, that's one of those terms that makes me think oftentimes of a road trip. I can think of a road trip one time that resulted or had a crisis right in the middle of it. My wife Shannon and I and our two kids at the time were getting ready to move from Colorado to Connecticut. And we packed up everything we owned into a U-Haul. I think it was the biggest U-Haul that they had at the time. And we also had our one vehicle, a Toyota 4Runner, in tow behind. And typical, we pack everything up and then we realize we forgot everything in the garden shed. So at the last minute, we're throwing hoses, rakes, everything into the cab of our 4Runner because it's really the only thing that has any space left. So then I head out. A couple of weeks later, Shannon and the kids are going to be flying out to join me, so it's my road trip by myself. I head out, takes me four days to get there. Day three comes in, and so far, easy sailing. Things are going great. But one of the things that I've tended to do in this road trip is I want to get as far as I can on every single tank of gas. So... As we're going, all of a sudden we hit Pennsylvania, or I hit Pennsylvania, and hills start to play a role. And I'm looking at the gauge, and I'm like, okay, it's, it's getting low, but we're not that bad. All of a sudden, the gas light comes on. Okay, but usually in gas tanks, they, they don't really mean it's low. You still got some time. So I keep driving, passing different truck stops, different gas stations, and then eventually the needle's all the way hitting that little black pin thing that stops it from going any further. And I'm like, I think it's true that you usually have about 50 more miles before you actually run out of gas. Well, what I'm not accounting for and what I'm choosing to ignore is that the hills are causing me to spend extra fuel than I normally would through the plains of Nebraska. So all of a sudden, I get to the crest of a hill and the truck turns off and I just start to coast. And I coast to the bottom of this, this hill, so I'm in this valley. Now, I am stuck. I have a cell phone, but in this particular valley, I don't have any service. So it's also a Sunday late afternoon, early evening, so there's very few people on the highway, perfect conditions. 
I'm stuck at the bottom of a hill, no gas, no cell coverage, and nobody on the road. So I'm sitting there, okay. I get into this situation, this is a crisis. All of my belongings are in this truck, and I'm stuck in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So I start to think, wait a minute. The forerunner has gas in it. How do I get gas from the forerunner to the U-Haul? I have a 100-foot garden hose sitting on the front seat of the forerunner that I pulled out of the shed. So I go get the hose, I jam it in the tank of the forerunner, I run that hose all the way to the U-Haul, and I've got a 100 foot of hose. And I'm like, well, never done it, but I've seen it in the movies, and I think you just have to suck really hard on the hose, and eventually fuel will come out, and it'll go in the tank. So there I am for quite a while, nothing's happened. Realize I don't have the lung capacity to pull gasoline from that tank, 100 feet of hose, into the next gas tank. So I'm like, okay, I think I have some pruning shears in the in the forerunner as well so i'm going to cut a length of hose that's a lot shorter than 100 feet so then i cut the hose try it again but this time i'm able to get something all of the fumes from the gas as i'm going (laughs) and i'm just inhaling gas fume gas fume gas fume and i start to have the most excruciating headache and i'm realizing i'm not getting anywhere what am i going to do and so then, when I feel like, okay, I have no, no other options, I cry out. I'm like, Lord, please help. What am I going to do? And not too long after that, a car comes by, pulls over, gives me a ride to the next gas station. I buy a, a gas can, fill it up with a couple of gallons, throw it in the U-Haul, and continue on my road. Well, this was definitely a crisis, and it was definitely a moment to cry out. But one of the things that I noticed from this is, Crying out wasn't my first thought. It was actually my last thought. And at first, my response was, fix it. I got myself into this mess. I got to get myself out of this mess. So oftentimes, our knee-jerk reaction to crisis or rerouting is we try to fix it ourselves or we try to go it alone rather than crying out to the Lord. And so when crisis hits, these times of difficult or trouble or danger, or loss that are so intense, we can take a lesson from the psalm and we can respond to crisis in a way that's actually gonna produce something, that's actually gonna help. And so we're looking at Psalm 90 today. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 90. Now this particular psalm is a psalm of Moses. So it's considered one of the earliest psalms we have. And it's a prayer It's attributed to Moses as a prayer. And we don't know exactly what prompted this particular prayer. We know based on the context and and what's expressed here that it comes out of some sort of season of crisis. We know that something has triggered it. We don't know which episode in Moses' life has, or maybe it's just a general perspective of everything that's gone on with the generation that he led through the wilderness. But he is a man, when we look at his story He's got plenty of reroutes, he's got plenty of crisis, and he gives us an incredible way to see how to respond to the crisis by crying out to God. And so let's take a look here at Psalm 90, starting in verse 1. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, Before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. 
You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam. For in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by. Like a few hours of the night, you end their lives and they sleep. They are like grass that grows in the morning. And in the morning it sprouts and grows. By evening it withers and dries up. For we are consumed by your anger. We are terrified by your wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Our lives last 70 years or, if we are strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. Make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us. Let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Here in Psalm 90, we have Moses crying out to the Lord. And it's an emotional journey. It's a journey that, that starts high, and then it goes through a valley before it comes back to a high point. And if we take just a, a walk through this text, starting out, he says, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. He references this idea that as a nomadic people wandering through the wilderness, who didn't have a home, God has always been their home, their refuge, a safe home, a safe dwelling place. And he's been constant in every generation. And in fact, he's a constant home and a safe home because he is God. He's eternal. No beginning, no end. He's always been God and always will be God. Therefore, he is the only safe refuge. And then Moses turns from that, and you see this sharp contrast. There's God, eternal, no beginning, no end. And then he transitions to recognizing man in a very temporal and small time span. He says, you return man to dust. And it, it invokes this imagery that even comes back from Genesis. In the beginning, when God created that poetic language in Genesis that out of the dust he created Adam, and here in this verse, he returns mankind to dust, return descendants of Adam to the dust. He goes on and, and identifies that a thousand years for us, when God sees that thousand year span, it's but a brief few hours in the night. And so, he continues to identify this few hours of the night, this brief lifespan of humanity. He likens it to 
grass that grows in the morning. It sprouts full of life, but by the afternoon and evening it withers and it dies. Its life is short. And so in this section, three through six, Moses is identifying and wholeheartedly admitting that compared to God, our lives are short. And they're short specifically because God has made them short. He brings us from dust, he returns us to dust. We grow in the morning and we wither by the evening. Our lives are what they are in terms of span because God has determined it to be so. You follow into the next passage. Why is it the case that our lives are this span, this short, short span? In verse 7, 4, we are consumed by your anger. We are terrified by your wrath. Specifically, our lives are the span that they are because of God's wrath. Well, why is God angry? Why is there wrath? Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Verse 9, for all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. This situation that we're in, this short span of life, this frail, short span of life is the way that it is because of our iniquity. God's wrath is a right response to our rebellion and our sin. He goes on to describe our lives last 70 years or maybe 80 if we're strong. But even the best of those 70 to 80 years, they are defined by struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. And so this is the situation. This is what Moses, in this moment of crisis, this season of crisis, whatever has caused this, he's admitting, you are God, you are eternal, and we, we humans, we're temporal. Our lives are short, we're fragile, and our lives are filled with struggle and toil, and sorrow. And so from there, he moves into a question in verse 11, which basically sums up 3 through 10. He says, who understands the power of your anger? Another way to think about that is, who's ever really considered the intensity of your anger at humanity's sin? Who has ever really considered that? Have we ever really pondered that? Or have we ever really experienced the full thrust of his anger? No, we haven't. And then he says, your wrath matches the fear that is due you. That means as we consider the intensity of his anger, fear should rise up because we know. We know our hearts We look around in this world, even today, and we see evil. And we know the God who made all of this, the God who is righteous and good and beautiful and true, he's angry and we should fear him. And his wrath should be matched by fear. And so who's ever really considered that? That's the question. And so his response is interesting. He says, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop a heart of wisdom. Now you think about 
the different ways in which we respond to that realization. The realization that our lives are short, they're fragile, they're filled with a ton of frustration and sorrow. So how do we respond? Well, we should cry out. We want to cry out. It's natural to cry out. But isn't this kind of our fault? Isn't it the case that we're in this situation because of us? Yes. And isn't, clearly in the text, isn't God frustrated? Not just frustrated, angry, furious, because this situation is what it is? Yes. So how do we cry out? Should we still cry out? Yes. Well, how? And that's what follows. And you'll notice that Moses' response is one of a handful. There's a, there's a couple of different ways you can respond when you're faced with that, the reality of our situation. When you have a, a brush with how fragile you are or how close to death you can be. And sometimes it's we ignore it. Out of sight, out of mind, we, get dis- we want to distract ourselves with it. We want to busy ourselves with work or, or anything else, but we just try to push it away and we ignore it. Or maybe it's we want to, look, life is short. YOLO, you only live once, so let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's the best response. Maybe it's despair. Maybe we look at the situation and we go, what's the point? Why even try? If that's what's, what's going on, we can't stop it. We can't change it. Why even try? Or maybe, maybe we try to fix it. Maybe we think, okay, I'm going to try to solve this situation on my own, and I'm going to try to get myself out of this situation. Or maybe I'm going to try to, to, to lower God's wrath, and so I'm going to do a bunch of good stuff, and maybe he won't be so angry. And all of these responses ultimately just lead to despair anyway. If we ignore it, we can only ignore it for so long because we'll continue to have episodes, crises that will fill our lives, flood us with emotions, and we'll realize that, man, this isn't going anywhere. Or we'll find ourselves at the end of the, okay, I'm just going to have fun and, and I'll just you know, spend the time that I have here doing whatever I want that pleases me. And then we realize sometimes in those quiet moments, it's not really helping and we're in deeper despair than we began. Or we try to fix it and we realize every time we f- try to fix it, it just gets worse and we have no ability to change the situation. Those are some ways that we can respond But notice Moses' response is is none of those. He says, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop a heart of wisdom. His response is one of acknowledgement. Our days are short. So teach us. Allow this crisis to be a teaching tool that shows us we got a short time here. It's brief and we're fragile. So teach us to have that right perspective of our lives so that we can have wisdom in our hearts, so that we can live wisely in the short, brief time that we do have. And so from this initial request that he makes, teach us, in verse 12, five more follow. He says, Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion. He's asking the Lord that, yes, it's, it's 
right for you to, to be wrathful and angry, you're completely justified in that response to our condition and our situation. However, please turn. Turn from that posture and have a posture of compassion. Have compassion on us, Lord. And then he continues, satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. He asks the Lord, please satisfy us. It makes you think of, for this wilderness generation, they experience that morning, that daily satisfaction from the Lord in his provision of manna. Every day, their physical needs, if he didn't act, if he didn't provide for their satisfaction, they wouldn't live. And so, this is a very real request. Lord, satisfy us. Then he goes on, make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us, for as many years as we have seen adversity. It's interesting because in verse 11, you see this recognition, your wrath matches the fear that is due you. And you see that our fear should be commensurate with his wrath. And here the request is, allow our joy to match the level of adversity. Allow us to rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us. And in, another thing there is, it's the Lord that has brought about the humbling. He has allowed the crisis and the troubled situations of our life to be the things, the vehicles through which humility will come so that we can develop this heart of wisdom. And then you see the fourth request here. Let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. Allow us in this season, in this crisis, allow us to see your, your hand at work. Allow us to see the fingerprints all over this situation. We want to see and know that you're present and you're working and that it, this is intentional. And then the last one, establish for us the work of our hands. Lord, we want to know that, that our work here matters, that our time, our labor, our efforts matter, and we realize only you can cause those things to have any value. We can struggle and toil all we want, but our lives are brief, they're fragile, and they're full of trouble, and whatever we put our hands to, it will only mean what you allow it to mean. It'll only have the value you give it. And so you see here a list. He responds to crisis, teach us, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And then in 13 through 17, we see what a heart of wisdom prays for when facing crisis. It prays for compassion. It prays for provision. It prays for joy. It prays to have vision to see the Lord at work. And it prays for value, that the Lord would grant value to the things that we do. That's what a heart of wisdom prays for. And so in addition to these, these five things that a heart of wisdom prays for, there's three other reflections that I think are important to, to think about and to identify in this passage. We see here for Moses... That a heart of wisdom, first of all, realizes that the crisis didn't introduce the dynamic of our short, 
troubled and fragile lives, but simply reveals and reminds us. The crisis isn't what causes our lives to be short. The, the crisis doesn't somehow introduce this and, 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 and make this, but we understand that this is a, a product of a world that we've made because of our rebellion, and the crisis simply pulls the curtain back on the normative nature of our troubled short lives and allows us to begin to deal with that. And God uses the crisis to reveal that to us so that we can develop a heart of wisdom and that we can live and worship the true God. And so he reveals that dynamic through crisis and it becomes apparent to the heart of wisdom that crisis is a teaching tool of the Lord. It's a gift of the Lord. It helps to to burn away the fog that maybe permeates our life and we don't see things as they truly are. A crisis blows away the fog so we can see what really matters. We can see what, what is actually a priority to the Lord and ought to be a priority to us. And so the first thing is a heart of wisdom sees that crisis doesn't introduce the dynamic of our short troubled lives but reveals it, and that's a gift. The second thing is that a heart of wisdom doesn't focus on human control in the situation, and it doesn't try to expedite the crisis or or get out of it or or away from it as fast as it can, but it, it cries out to God. A heart of wisdom cries to God and asks Him to move. So it doesn't focus on our ability to manage and move and act, but it focuses on God's necessity to act and move if we're going to have any hope and so it cries out for the compassion for the provision for the joy for the vision and the value that only God can bring and a third thing a heart of wisdom is honest about our mortality and our sin but it doesn't dwell there it doesn't hang out in the doom and despair of our situation but turns with hopeful anticipation that God will act because he has acted in that way in the past and we have a guarantee in Christ Jesus. And so a heart of wisdom responds to crisis and acknowledges, yeah, that's our situation, but it doesn't hang out there and doesn't dwell in despair, but lives in light of God's glory and grace. You know, we, we, our lives, we encounter crisis of, of a variety of intensity. Some little, some big, but crisis, we realize, is a regular part of this life. And we see that it is a gift. That this reroute that's brought about by crisis, when these happen in our lives, they are a gift. And the emotions that we respond with that naturally come out and are provoked by the crisis, these are also a gift from the Lord. But I, I want you to understand, and I think it's important to realize that as the Lord allows crisis to occur in your life, that he's also trying to get our attention. Because in the way that we respond to these crises, in our lives now, anticipate 
the turnout of a, the ultimate crisis. That somehow when we at the end of this life will stand before the judgment seat of God, the ultimate crisis is that he looks at us and says, depart from me, I never knew you. And the way that we respond to crisis now and cry out to him and trust in Christ alone for our salvation, that's the determining factor if he responds with depart from me or well done, good and faithful servant. Paul talks about in Romans 5, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more than since we have been now justified by his blood will we be saved through him from wrath? Again, Paul says in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in John, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. I want you to, today, to realize that crisis in your life, it doesn't feel good, but it is a gift. And it, if it's a gift from the Lord, then it means it's good. And ultimately, he wants you to turn to him, to cling to him, and turn away from the temptation to despair or try to fix it yourself. That when you find yourself in that valley that's brought about by crisis, cry out to the living God because he is a God of compassion. He is a God that provides. He is a God that gives joy. He is a God that gives value and grants you vision to see him when everything else seems so dark. So I invite you today to cry out to God in whatever crisis you are in. And know that if you if you want to talk to somebody or reach out to somebody or you just want to name your crisis and you just want to put it in, in the feed, if you want to text or call one of our pastors, we would love to talk with you. But cry out to God and we would love to come alongside you as you do that.